nationwide are raving about it. Sold-out audiences are loving it. Oh! Premier Magazine calls The Life Aquatic one of the year's best films. It's outrageously funny. I'm gonna fight you, Steve. The Life Aquatic. Rated R. Now playing in New York and L.A. Christmas nationwide. Welcome back, folks, to Who's Filmography Is It Anyway, where the points are just like a stop sign at three in the morning. I am your host, uh, Josh Page, and with me, as always, my co-host and friend, Steve. Hello, hello, everyone. We are back. We're back. It's been a minute, but we're back. Well, not to them. It hasn't been a minute to them. It has not been a minute, but a mere however long it's been. One uh, week for them. One whole week. One whole week. To which we are now, uh, uh, re we have reached the, not, not most, not controversial, um, but we have reached the first uh, uh, arguable stint in this, in this uh, lineup here. Well, the one that would get people talking, but it's the one and only uh, Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, so. No, I, like you said, I, maybe not the word controversial is needed, but of all of Wes Anderson's work, I would say this is the most controversial not in like a not in the content sense but in in the fan base sense this yeah. is the one that fans seem to they're divided them. on it on yes. this one specifically yes. more than any other wes anderson it, movie it's the most divisive of all of his it's uh yes it was uh 2004 it was a great year uh well, I don't remember every movie that came out that year, but Million Dollar Baby won Best Picture. So Shrek Two was killing it at the box office. Also, Million Dollar Baby was <laughs> Shrek Two. Jesus, I haven't watched a <laughs> Shrek movie in God knows how long. Uh, Robin was watching one of the, the some of the first Shrek movie the other day, and um, I just caught a little bit of the dialogue. I can't tell you once how long it's since I've seen a Shrek movie, but it was really still holding up for me. I was like, oh, this is still very snappy and witty, like I remember. But Yeah. Uh, God. That's remember when Mike Myers was uh, funny? When he was a person, you mean? Before his dad died and he wanted to, like, take a break from, like, uh, or was it his wife? No, that was Rick, Rick, that was Rick Moranis. Yeah, that was Rick Moranis. You're, you're confusing the two. No, no, no. Mike Myers had, like, a death in his family and, like, quit acting. Is that what happened? I think so. I thought he tried to come back and it didn't work. He was in uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. That's what it was. Oh, that's he right. Was the, uh, he was one of the producers of the Queen albums and he had a thick Scottish accent. And I'm like, dude, you're just doing Fat Bastard without the fat suit. It was, a, uh, it was, it was a, quite a journey when it reached that point. But. Oh, God. I don't want to talk about that movie. I didn't. We, you want to talk about controversial, yeah. That's a totally different road. <laughs> totally different road. Well, but let's focus uh, back but on... yes, Life Aquatic. So, do I want to tell the audience? Go for how, it. Do, do I want to tell the audience my first time watching this movie? Tell us how Bill Murray popped your cherry with this movie. Well, this is one of the most Bill Murray, Bill Murray movies ever made, so... I uh, would say this is quintessential Bill Murray. This is this is just Bill Murray the movie with like a scuba team like And this is uh the movie right after the year he got screwed out of his Oscar for best lost actor. In, lost in translation? Yeah. Yeah. 
This was the year after Lost in Translation. He lost to Sean Penn for Mystic River, which is bullshit. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I agree with you, but I can see why people would like Sean Penn, to, you know. Listen. I'm not a Sean Penn fan, though. That's the thing. I, it's not whether I'm a fan of his or not. It's a matter of he was in the movie for, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. And, you know, you could make the argument because, like, what's his face? Uh, Anthony, Anthony Hopkins, Hopkins won for Silence of the Lambs. But he steals the movie every scene he's in. I don't get that from Sean Penn and Mystic River. And no, I agree. Bill Murray gave arguably the best performance of his career in oh, yeah. Lost in Translation. Oh, it's just good. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I just, whatever. We don't have to go over the... The Bill Murray cherry and the, and the great the Oscar, skin of 2003. But I was going to say the tragedy of Oscar past. We don't need to worry about it. So the four times. The before times. Most of the Oscars will happen again without uh, any movies. Well, we'll get there when we get there. But basically, I don't really have a backstory. I was on my journey to in college and really discovering uh, Wes Anderson and realizing um, what I had really liked about him and going back and watching his films chronologically. That was during that time. this was the first one that actually really, and I'll save like my thoughts because my thoughts were similar. My thoughts, some thoughts changed, but this was the first movie of his that really gelled with me for Wes Anderson's, um, like, I mean, like we've talked all about Royal Tenenbaums and how good it is, but it's just like, this is the one I was like, oh, this is like very fun in a very unique way um, that I think even almost every movie he's done even since hasn't really touched in that very like zany, goofy kind of way. And we'll, like I said, I'll save those thoughts for later, but um yeah, it was during that whole uh, that I did. But yes, do tell us about uh, <laughs> about uh, yours. Like you, I don't really have a uh, I don't have like a great backstory with this movie. It's relatively the same. Uh, in high school, I was watching Wes Anderson movies, as we have discussed uh, over the past couple weeks, and ultimately, this movie was on the television. And I hit record on that DVR. I watched it. And more than anything, I walked away going, I could listen to some David Bowie music. I was just going to say, the soundtrack, one, the, one, of the walk, one of the walkaways from this movie, whether anyone likes it or not, is that it's got an incredible soundtrack. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. uh, the covers of the David Bowie songs in this, mo- in this movie, great. Phenomenal. Um, I was going to say that actually, if you want to roll into the pre-production with this, but actually one of the notes I have. Yeah, is, go for um, it. I don't know who had done it. Uh, Sir Jorge, whoever this, whoever, I don't know who it is who played the music. Yeah. Um, had translated the Bowie songs into Portuguese and arranged them for the guitar himself. Oh, nice. Yeah. Good so for I him. know this is, yeah. So this is, I guess, something they had planned to just kind of do a spin and the certain classic songs would do them in their own way, and it really shows. It's really unique. Uh, so while we're in production and pre-production news, let's just roll with it. This movie was written by Wes Anderson and not Owen Wilson this time. This yep. time it was Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach. Good friend Noah. And Good friend shows. Noah. I feel like it doesn't really show i don't know i don't get a noah bombback feel from this movie i mean i get more of the wes anderson feel but it's like it's almost like 
my mind went to my like my Arrowhead stories because I just thought of the dynamic more so than marriage story was more dramatic because I'm just thinking more recently going back is I think of something like um, even like Squid and the Whale. It's like kind of um, forgot about that movie. Even then, it's like it's it's balancing dramedy, but it's like very um, the cheeky dialogue between characters that feels very human, um, even more so than Tenenbaums in a way. Um, because it's kind of like wringing um, the worst out of people in ways that I, Bombach does in almost every single one of his movies. I bring up my Arrowhead stories because he does it in a, a more funnier way. Um, mm. Bombach all, um, leans a lot towards the drama, even though his movies are considered comedy. But that was one for me, uh, my Arrowheads, that felt like it actually had that tonal balance of like awkward humor in the same way that this movie does. Um, and I just feel like there's that hum- human side, that deeply human side that's absurdly funny. No, that's a good point. That's fair. I, it has the inter-human connectivity that Bombach likes to hit on the head. So I could see that. You're right. It brings that's, his character. That's a good drama. call. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking, though, you know, you know how there are always, like, camps of uh, actors and directors and, you know, people who always work together? Mm-hmm. And I feel like one, like Adam Sandler with his crew, they have like a nickname. I don't know what it is. You know, the Happy Madison guys, the slapstick stuff they do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But there's always like these groups of actors or whatever. I feel like between Sofia Coppola, Wes Anderson, and Noah Baumbach, there's like a weird little camp of like oh, absolutely Bill Indeed. Murray, Jason Hipster. Schwartzman, uh, Scarlett Johansson. Where the actors all cross over. Yeah. It's just a weird crossover. Ben Stiller's in there. Owen yeah. Wilson. Like a like a Wes, uh, uh, whatever, a Wes uh, Bamba Coppola cinematic universe. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. now that we're bringing the scale back to uh, and the pre-production slash production notes. Pre-production. Uh, the budget for this movie was $50 million. And... The box office receipts were thirty-four point eight million, meaning this was not successful. And from what I am gathering, it may have cost more than fifty million dollars. You know, it's funny that I didn't—I didn't look at the budget. It, this movie actually feels like a bigger one of his bigger budgets. It actually—and I want to get into this as we're talking about it—but it actually it has the feel of something. I don't know if it's just because of the plot that they're literally taking age to see that it feels bigger, but it's just the the grand scope of this movie feels a lot larger. So I was actually surprised it was 50 million, although he doesn't need a big budget to feel like a big budget. So maybe that's mm-hmm. what it is. Um, but I was that's actually surprising to me. No, the movie is very grand, but from what I am gathering, it cost more closer to like 60 something million dollars, which means that it lost a bunch of money, but you know, as well as I do, that the cult following of this movie has definitely brought back all the revenue that. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I was surprised when I was going through the Criterion to see that I think every movie Wes Anderson has done is in the Criterion. Yeah, it is, including this one, and I had not even realized. So yeah, it's got the following enough. So yeah, um, well, Criterion makes a lot of movies that a lot of people don't know. That's yeah. Um, but Wes Anderson has, uh, 
discussed this film with Bill Murray on the set of Rushmore, actually. It's a movie that was in his brain for like 14 years uh, prior to making it. According to Owen Wilson, Bill Murray was very comfortable with the Speedo. (laughs) It works. (laughs) Uh, Willem Dafoe found the project very challenging because he only had minimal dialogue. He said that he would be sitting around and give maybe two lines every day. So he found it, you know, maybe not, I, you know, he said it in a more fun mannered way because he, he's a man who likes challenges in his movies, but he said he found it a challenge to just be like in the background. I mean, considering, uh, you know, all of, all of his, I mean, the dialogue that he carries in the lighthouse, you know, anything he's in really, but how he's just, he's such a man of words when he speaks. Like he's very, he's very old school with that. He's very yeah, theatrical. He's very Shakespearean. So to see yeah. many scenes where he's very, this is some of the quietest I've seen him, not counting Grand Budapest, where I think he has actually zero dialogue, but. Wes was very, very specific about the boat, though that is a shock to no one. He uh, wanted the boat to be a World War II, like it had to be out of the World War II era. Yeah, Uh, that didn't surprise me. The half boat set where everyone is walking through it, the actors found it a lot of fun, unsurprisingly. It looks Uh, like it. Yeah, they thought it was like so theatrical and so fun, but it was also huge. It was 40 foot feet tall and 110 feet long. Cool. It's crazy. Henry Selick, uh, who was the director on The Nightmare Before Christmas and a bunch of other stop-motion animated movies, came in to do the creatures for... Uh, oh. Yeah, it is. That makes it a lot more special than them to do... Uh, very easily, you could have just done computer effects, you know, and it feels special like that way. Yeah, well, they said that they wanted to give something that looks real, but also something that looks like artificial with a double blink sure so good job for costuming apparently wes and noah were very specific in the screenplay about uh, what everyone was wearing but they still brought in uh melena canonero i don't know how to pronounce it i'm sorry i'm gonna botch a lot of names this whole thing oh yeah uh be fun she was uh, actually one of the draws for Angelica Houston to, be, to do this movie because she knew this costume designer from The Shining. While oh, really? Angelica Houston was not in The Shining, obviously. She was dating Jack Nicholson while he was filming The Shining. And Good grief. Yeah. And apparently she uh, called up Angelica Houston and described you know, what she wanted to do with the character, saying it would be beautiful to have blue hair and interesting with green eyes because she, like, literally colored Angelica Houston's eyes. Yeah, wow. Yeah. There's also, uh, you know, all the red caps may look the same, but they're not. They're specifically tailored to each character. So Bill Murray looks like a Smurf hat. Willem Dafoe has had a pom-pom at the end of it. Owen Wilson's had like a colorful tag in the beginning, yeah. not at the beginning, in like uh, the front of it. So like each of them was the same yet different. 
Um, apparently, the, the Red Wool Caps, as much of the movie, but apparently the Red Wool Caps are direct reference to Jacques Cousteau. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, it was because they said famed, um, a famed underwater filmmaker, co-inventor of the modern Aqualung, uh, you know, as well as obviously his exploration at sea. But it's just, um, it's funny because I didn't realize that those were even references. Um, I love, I love the costuming in this movie. It's so, it's so unique. And the final note I have is that Kate Blanchett found out that she was pregnant on the set of this movie. Apparently she had fainted on set. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They wrapped her in a full body cast and she fainted. Um, she was surprised. I was just reading a bit because as you were saying it. Yeah. She was, um, she was surprised by this as she had never fainted before and learned in the next few days that she was pregnant. And that ties into the whole thing. Good for her. <laughs> How about that? How about those babies? I... We could probably talk about it later, but you know what? Fuck it. Let's talk about Kate Blanchett now. She's great in this movie. This is right uh, after her Lord of the Rings stint. Oh, so she's on an acting high. And she won the Oscar for this year, for not for this movie, for The Aviator, where she played Katherine Hepburn. Oh, of course. Which I think she's testing her Katherine Hepburn voice in this movie. That's so funny. It's funny because it feels like, I don't know, she's always been a, a great, she's always a great actress, but it, her performance in this feels very offbeat. It feels very special. It feels very different than everyone else, um, which is funny you say that because the top trivia note is that um, Blanchett had never rehearsed with the crew and had not even met most of them before filming the nighttime electric jellyfish scene in which she first appears in the movie to add spontaneity to the scene. That's that's funny. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, she's good. She's a, um, and she's a wrench for uh, this whole crew because everyone else seems to fit the Wes Anderson's uh, gang a little bit, but she kind of sticks out a little bit in a good way, but she, she definitely stands out. Yeah. I don't think she's worked with him since. No. Which uh, is sad. I feel like if this movie were to be made by Wes Anderson now, that part would definitely be played by Tilda Swinton. I was going to say, doesn't she pop up in Grand Budapest? But I really feel like I'm just thinking of Tilda Swinton as an old lady. <laughs> yeah, that is Tilda Swinton. Oh, man. I can't wait to get to Grand Budapest. And That's gonna Tilda be good. Swinton. Oh. I, I just, uh, you know, I don't mean I to get into a different movie, but when she's laying in the fucking casket it's so and uh, Gustav is on top of her, he's like, what, if, what cream are you wearing, darling? It's fast. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Oh, Ray Fiennes robbed, man. He was so good in that movie. So let's Very get good. to the plot. In arguably Wes Anderson's most meta opening sequence, the film begins at a film festival. The festival is in France, and those in attendance are prim and proper, tuxedos and diamonds. Very classy. Very classy. Uh, it is the premiere of Steve Zizow's, Bill Murray's new documentary, Adventure Number 12, The Jaguar Shark, Part 1. And I also have to comment, Josh is wearing a Jaws shirt right now, which has not been lost. The irony has not been lost on me. Thank you for noticing. I, my dedication for this show that everyone can see. I appreciate it. It's all about the sharks right now, son. As the opening line suggests, quote, this was to be our most ambitious adventure to date and ultimately a tragedy. Before the tragedy strikes, the crew is introduced. Esteban du Plantier, Seymour Castle, chef, diver, senior statesman. Klaus Daimler, 
I'm glad yeah. I didn't take take the yeah. This I want to apologize <laughs> in advance because I'm about to butcher literally everyone's name. Yeah, I would just skip over all this, but yes, go for it. Go do you do you, man? Live your Klaus best life. Klaus Daimler, Willem Dafoe, forty, engineer, Vikram Ray, Waris Alawalia. That sounds right. Twenty-eight, cameraman, Bobby Ogata, Niels Korzumi. 22, Frogman, Renzo, Pietro, Powell, I can't even, I'm not even attempting. <laughs> 45, Editor, Soundman, Vikram, Woldarski, this one's easy, Noah Taylor plays this guy, thank you, Noah Taylor. 33, Physicist, Original Score Composer, Anne-Marie Skazowicz, Robin Cohen, 25, Script Girl, and of course, when we meet her, she's topless. <laughs> In fact, I think she's topless in the first half of the movie. <clears throat> Nothing wrong with that. Nope. Uh, Pele dos Santos. Uh, Sue Jorge? I don't know. <laughs> Save 30, safety expert. And Eleanor Zizow, Angelica Houston. Wife, vice president of Zizow Society, Angelica Houston. <clears throat> and seven unpaid interns. Um, speaking of the interns, uh, I don't know if he's credited, Matthew Gray Goobler um, is, was also Wes Anderson's intern in real life. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, so I guess, like, while they were filming this, they just, like, threw him in since he was already kind of, like, you know, helping out. Uh, yeah, and seven unpaid interns. Every crew member is wearing the red cap and a blue suit. After the crew is introduced, the aforementioned tragedy strikes. Esteban was eaten by an unknown shark. Steve underwater with Esteban witnessed his best friend being eaten. He was able to shoot the shark with a homing dart. However, what Steve dubbed as the Jaguar shark is not seen in the documentary, nor did any of the crew see it. Following the documentary is a Q&A with Steve. From the top balcony, a question is asked by Edward Ned Plimpton, Owen Wilson, regarding Steve's intentions about the shark. Steve answers, Quote, well, that was only part one. It's a cliffhanger. Now I'm going to go hunt down the shark or whatever it is and hopefully kill it. I don't know how yet. Maybe dynamite? <laughs> Aghast, the audience erupts asking, what is the scientific reason for killing it? Steve calmly answers, quote, revenge. The theater empties out. Steve's arm is grabbed by Antonia Cook, Isabel Blow. She proceeds to tell him that the film was a disaster, but seriously great. Uh, I, I'm i sure it will come up like in our conversations. I don't make a note of it necessarily, but what I find so interesting about this movie, you know, at the top I said it's meta. I feel like this movie is Wes Anderson's interpretation of what it is to be a director. Um. Yeah, so in the way that it's, you know what, I'll, we'll, I'll keep it parallel for, to keep consistency in our, what you and I are doing, but it's almost like what, obviously in a different, totally different way, but it's almost like what Nolan was doing with The Prestige in making a very meta commentary about the industry, about the way it's done and using a character to represent the idea of what it is they're doing for an audience, and he's doing the exact same thing, but in his own way. Yeah, well, I think that, uh, you know, it's very clear that there's commentary in the opening about film festivals. And 
you know, Steve's arm is grabbed and a critic tells him that it was a disaster, but seriously great. And it's as I'm about so to read, he's going to talk to his producer who wants, who's going to talk to him about money to make the next film, even though his last film was not good and it was a bomb. You yeah. know, it's just very meta. And there's more meta moments in the movie that have to do with uh, Bill Murray's career. You know, it's just very interesting. But we'll get to it as we keep going. Uh, Osari Dracalius? I don't know. Michael Gambon, Dumbledore himself. Yeah. Steve's producer slash agent interrupts with a possible investor for his next film. The interruption is quickly interrupted as Steve is begrudgingly called over to take a picture with Alistair Hennessy, Jeff Goldblum, who's great in this movie. So good. Their relationship's contentious nature is quickly explained as Eleanor joins them. Eleanor is Steve's current wife and Alistair's ex-wife. She's noted to be the, quote, brains of the Zizu team. Before Steve is given the moral high ground, a woman comes over. It is clear she and Steve had an affair. As Eleanor walks away, Klaus in introduces Steve to his young nephew, Werner. Werner gives Steve a crayon pony fish. The film premiere ends, much like Russell Crowe's early days, with a paparazzi <laughs> asking why Steve isn't sitting Shiva for Esteban. Steve attacking that man. Oh, because they were fighting. <laughs> fighting round the world. Fighting round the world. Oh, man. Also, Amazing. why would he be sitting Shiva for a man named Esteban? There's no way that man is Jewish. It's really funny either way. <laughs> it is. Are you sitting Shiva for this man? Oh, man. The seahorse is the first note of the stop motion animation that looks like it could have been out of the, if not a nightmare before Christmas, it's not the right world for it. But, um, you know, that, that world we grew up in that has been preceded by the, uh, who does Paranorman and all that stuff? Um, Leica. Yeah, I like it. Like some of the, it's cool to see the little stop motion. There was a wild after party on Steve's ship, the Belafonte. Gathered inside is Oseri, Steve, Eleanor, and the crew. Oseri said that the Saudi investor will let them know about the money soon. Steve said he wants to know by Sunday. He then says, well, if you excuse me, I'm going to go on an overnight drunk, and in 10 days, I'm going to set out to find the shark that ate my friend and destroy it. Anyone that would care to join me is more than welcome. On the ship is Ned in full U.S. Air Force uniform. Without saying it directly, Steve knows Ned may be his son, that they are unsure. The two bond as Steve smokes a joint. A bright idea goes off in Steve's head that Ned should join the crew. It was definitely a stoned idea. Not that I would know anything about such a thing. No, no, no. Of course we wouldn't. We condone that. <coughs> <coughs> <laughs> a tour of the ship is then given through an old film of Steve's. Let me tell you about my boat. The Belafonte was a long-range sub-hunter during the Second World War, which we bought from the U.S. Navy for $900,000. This is my mentor, Lord Mandrake. He's dead now. The sauna was designed by an engineer from the Chinese space program and we keep a Swedish masseuse on staff. Here's where we do all our different science projects and experiments and so on. This is the kitchen, which contains probably some of the most technologically advanced equipment on the ship. 
Eleanor put together a top-notch research library for us with a complete first edition set of the Life Aquatic Companion series. We process our own rushes and keep a cutting room on board so we can do an assembly while we're shooting. I can't find them. Once again, please. This is the observation bubble, which I thought up in a dream, actually. Two albino scouts swim with the ship. They're supposedly very intelligent, although I've never seen any evidence of it. Here's the engine room. The bearing casings aren't supposed to look like that, but we can't afford to fix them this year. Topside, we've got the bridge, the mini-sub, an old chopper, and all kinds of radar and sonar and underwater movie gadgets. It's a cool fucking ship. Yeah, I mean, it's one I admire about Wes Anderson's set design in general is that he is clearly, uh, you know, he films like an adult and he's, you know, a quirky, mature adult, but yet he has this childlike sense of wonder in all of his movies. And the, the, the ship always felt to me, every time watching it, feels like a playground in a sense, especially that shot where you're following him along the ladders where it does the, you see through on the other side. Um, it's like a jungle gym and it just, it's ironic that it's like an old world war two ship. And at the same time, like it feels fun. It almost feels like something you would bring children to it. Like, um, like a veterans reenactment of the ship and where people can like run around and like, like they can be part of the ship as if like a child would run around at like a space camp. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it, it, it captures a unique sense of youth. No, that's the perfect way to, say it I, I have nothing to add that's um that's but it's also a cool good. a cool ship you put it you know what i mean it's that's that's cool fine fucking ship. that's it man um i don't know if you made a note of the power going out i did not steve's current status in the scientific community is reinforced as he and ned go to the explorers club at the club is an embarrassing painting of steve other members are ridiculing steve in french as well Steve and Ned go to Steve's private island. The entire crew is already there. Eleanor, in her warm way, greets Steve by saying, your cat's dead. On the island is an impressive research lab, which houses an orca. Yeah, but for some reason, there's just like a killer whale like on this island. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's those little details. The movie doesn't need them, but it's like, it just totally adds to the personality of everything going on. Um, at night, the island comes to life as a rubber tide comes in, a rare occurrence when electric jellyfish wash up on shore at once. Ned is put to work as a boom operator, but asks Steve questions. Liking the chemistry, Steve pulls Ned into the frame. Putting Ned on the spot, Steve asks him to join the crew. Ned said he is not a good swimmer, but yes, Steve is, jub is jubilant. Klaus is in a rage, flipping the camera, insisting that the audio will be shit anyway because of Ned. That was a goddamn tearjerker. Why did you cut it, man? Because the sound is going to be shit. He doesn't even know how to hold a boom. He doesn't know diddly check about what we do. <laughs> love it. Uh, man. I, I, I love Klaus. He's so um, fucking funny. It's a good character. It's very different. We'll get into it later in some of his better moments. A female voice is heard from the shadows of the beach. It is Jane Winslet Richardson, Kate Blanchett, a pregnant journalist reporting on Steve Zissou's newest adventure. Ned walks Jane to her room, telling Jane that he has worked for Steve for about 10 minutes now. Jane, before going to bed, pulls out a book to read to the baby. Ned stays to listen. The next morning, Jane begins to interview Steve. Her first question is, 
quote. So what happened? <laughs> Steve is confused by the question. Jane follows up by telling Steve that his career has been in a tailspin. After a few more questions, Steve ends the interview, but not before Jane tells Steve that she is the only one who still gives a shit about his adventures. She even came to the island without her expenses being paid. Meanwhile, outside, Klaus confronts Ned, slapping him in the face. Ned, furious, tells Klaus not to touch him again. This is one of the moments where it's just so funny. It's outrageous. Uh, Ned and Steve then have a heart-to-heart. First, Steve warns Ned not to trust Jane. Steve also admits that he found out about Ned about five years ago, but did not contact him because, quote, I hate fathers and I never wanted to be one. Uh, While Steve is giving Ned his new uniform, which consists of a gun, unless you're an intern, then you have to share. Uh, The phone rings. Ozeri tells Steve the Saudi backer backed out. Ned, overhearing this, offers up his $275,000 inheritance. Ned and Steve immediately fly the choppy chopper to Ozeri's office to finalize the deal. The bank will agree to the loan on three conditions. One, drug test for from everyone on board, which I guess they overlooked Steve's drug test. We've seen him yeah. smoke several joints. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two, a stooge from the Bond company will be riding everywhere during the whole shoot. This will be Bill, you will, Bud Court. Three, you must swear, legally swear, that you will not kill the shark or whatever it is. Back on the island, preparations are being made. The crew runs on the beach, shot right out of chariots of fire like, that's a great scene right out of they're chariots all running on the beach it's just funny that the outfits they are yeah because it's just so quirky like it's like you imagine that they're all like training and like, you're supposed to be not that we're supposed to take it seriously but for them it's like they're prepping but like you just can't help it just i i just don't know how i could see that on set and just not crack up like it's just it's it's very jarring but it's um you know it works it's ned tries and nearly dies scuba diving as Steve starts CPR, the F-stop is taken, which again, this is some like movie commentary, you know? You got to check the F-stop even when tragedy <laughs> is striking because yeah, you got to make sure the camera's in the right <laughs> fucking light setting. <laughs> oh, man. There is even a dynamite test. While the crew watches an old Steve Zizel film, Eleanor confronts Steve. She's leaving. Pissed that Ned is on the crew. Pissed Steve took Ned's money and the lack of respect she gets. The two say bon voyage, not goodbye, even if it is true. Day one of the adventure. Steve is checking out his first edit session. Ned has been added into the introduction as Kingsley Ned Zizo, 29, junior grade diving tech, executive producer, energetic spirited youthful. Steve says he likes the cut, specifically the family subplot. (laughs) We we didn't really talk about Owen Wilson, but he's also doing something great in this movie. It's just mm-hmm. so different than anything he usually does. It's more, how do I put this? It's more forward of him. His roles have always been very laid back, but here he's got a little more push. He's a little, I don't know, I feel like he's, not that he's given more to do, but he's not just Owen Wilson playing Owen Wilson, if that makes any sense. As Steve called dibs on Jane, he puts the moves on her during her second interview which is happening in a hot air balloon. Very sexy. Very, very sexual. Instead of Steve opening up, Jane does. Telling Steve she is <laughs> sorry. five... I'm sorry, I just, your comment before, I, it just reminds me, like, they're on a boat. How could yeah. she not? 
Because of the implication. Because of the (laughs) implication. I mean, come on now. Instead of Steve opening up, Jane does. Telling Steve she is five months pregnant with a married man's child. Steve goes in for a kiss, but is rejected. Jane then asks Steve about Ned. At this point, Steve is angry at the situation, asking Jane if she plans on screwing them. Jane takes the drink out of Steve's hand and swigs it back. In classic Bill Murray deadpan, he he asks Jane, you really think it's cool to hit the sauce with a bun in the oven? The interview <laughs> is over. That was honestly like the funniest line in the whole movie to me. It's he it's it's one of those moments that I I, I can't imagine it was. I could it could have been, but it's like one of those moments that like if Bill Murray improvised that line, I just wouldn't I wouldn't even blink twice. Like it's just it's a very like you say, classic Bill Murray deadpan. It's just that's the best way to capture it. Um At night, Ned and Steve have another heart-to-heart conversation. Ned wants to create a new insignia for the ship. Steve says he hopes Ned is finding whatever it is he hoped to find on this adventure. Ned then reveals that 17 years prior, he wrote a note to Steve. The response Ned got was a standard boilerplate letter, which even ended with the words dictated, not written. (laughs) So disrespectful. So disrespectful. Very disrespectful. And the fact that Ned carries that letter around with him, says I, a lot. it says a lot. Yeah. Because he wants desperately for this to be, for Steve to be his father. And yeah. Steve is just like, he's trying to connect with Ned. Clearly he renamed him Kingsley. Like, See, so that's him. Yeah. He's trying, he's walking that fine line of like, I want the positives about being your father yeah. But I don't want to deal with the bullshit that you're about to bring me. See, that to me is all Noah Bombach is the awkward way of trying to force the bonding in a way where you're like kind of secretly pulling at each other's heartstrings, even though like it's like you're being funny about it. You're trying to bond, but it's like very it's trying so hard to create a, a bond and it's like, doesn't know how to do it. It's awkward. It's a, it's a, it's a very intentional way of writing. And that to me feels exactly like, um, like or what's came to mind, but like other Bombach uh, films. Day five, Operation Hennessy Underwater Sea Laboratory. Steve and crew make it to Alistair's underwater lab. As they, as they clearly do not have the key, they blow the door. They ransack the facility as fast as they can even stealing the espresso machine. <laughs> when, when Alistair finds out, he wants to find the quote-unquote crooked fuckers who did it. <laughs> Anne-Marie confronts Steve about the course he wants to take as it goes through unprotected waters, quote-unquote. Steve tells Anne-Marie that it will save money on gas. The new equipment has been set up on the Belafonte. Ned notices a phantom signal on the new screen and wants to check it out. Steve put on the spot begrudgingly agrees. They dive at 6 a.m. finding an airplane floor. While underwater, Ned asks Steve if he can call him dad. Steve says no, but how about Steve? Steve Z? Steve Z. <laughs> Steve Z, that's right. Um, I'm very well, lucky that people have not done that to me. <laughs> well, <laughs> Steve says no, but 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 how about Steve How about Steve Z? Yes, I don't, you should be. That uh, is equivalent to dad, you know? Come on. Steve Z. If you, 
<laughs> I'm just picturing you having a having a son. God forbid, but it's just like you have. The, you're just you're just you. You don't baby talk the baby. You just like raise it. You just feed it until it's like well, you don't show any emotion. And all of a sudden, it just like looks at you and it's like dad and you're like no no and you're like steve and it's like steve and the baby looks at you as like steve z and you're like no and then that's just that's it that's the end of film (laughs) back on the ship steve starts his adr session in the hall ned slaps klaus who is taken completely by surprise (laughs) as the power goes out klaus runs away i love that look in his face (laughs) yeah incredible I love just the dialogue in that scene because I, I didn't put it down, but like I thought the warning was enough. Like it's just the small moments that make it that make them great, you know. It's that it doesn't need to be more. Day nine in unprotected waters. Ned is in Jane's room listening to the baby. Jane kisses Ned. From the dolphin cameras, the audience and Steve see Ned and Jane banging. Very classy. So classy. Well, you know, if you didn't want to get caught, you shouldn't have done it in front of the dolphins. You can't. Dolphins are snitches. Several small vessels sneak up on the Belafonte. It is a pirate attack. No Captain Jack Sparrow, though. Steve is ripped from the sauna and and tied to the sink in Jane's room. The pirates then tie up Jane and take Ned hostage. At gunpoint, Steve walks through the wreckage the pirates have wrought. Steve wants to talk to the leader. Bill, who speaks the language, is going to be taken hostage instead of Ned. The the pirates want Steve safe. Steve claims he does not have a safe. Cut to an old film of Steve talking about his safe. Uh, As the crew is all lined up, the camera pans in on Steve. The color scheme shifts from a cool tone to a warm tone, which is, I don't know if you've caught that, but it's like one of the coolest transitions i've ever seen so when the guy like i told you when that then i saw that video about the guy talking about electricity he specifically focused on it Mm -hmm. this was one of the primal scenes he talked about because as they're getting about to be executed he has that thought of his old friend and i think they show even show a literal spark and then all or, or they show like a moment where all of a sudden he snaps the color scheme changes and when he's shooting there's sparks all around in the scene Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like he's re- he's finding that reignited spark. And the guy was getting really into the metaphor of it. But it, as I was picking up on it, it was coming to me that it's almost like, and I'll save my thoughts on it, but it's like this whole idea of someone looking for a sense of adventure. And even though they're about to die, this is this represents that sense of adventure. It's like there are sparks everywhere. So, But it was very unique because it's the only time in the movie, it's one of the only times in a lot of Wes Anderson movies where the scene shifts in a, gradual way in one shot or one scene that's not even gradual it's like immediate the color tone just completely shifts and with the color the whole tone shifts because as i'm about to it's very unlike it's very unlike his other stuff yeah i it almost makes me question whether it's real or not like Mm -hmm. i don't know whether he actually got out of it or not we can get into all that later uh the colors scheme shifts from a cool tone to a warm tone. Steve bites the ropes off his arm, gets a gun, and takes the pirates on. The pirates flee the scene. The ship is on fire, and in turn has been macheted. Ned is still unconscious. The crew is still blindfolded, and the pirates left their dog. Oh, and they took the stooge. The pirates took the company stooge. (laughs) 
Uh, day 14, Mutiny on the Bellefonte. To Steve's chagrin, Alistair and his ship, Operation Honey, is the rescue party. After all is in order, Alistair hands Steve an invoice, which is hilarious. Yeah, It's like, here, here's my rescue invoice. I, by the way. <laughs> Steve says he cannot sign it as the, as the business stooge has to sign off on all expenses. Before leaving, Alistair tells Steve he had dinner with Eleanor last week. With morale low, Steve calls the crew to the mast. There is a line on the ground, and Steve exclaims, If you're not against me, don't cross this line. If yes, do. I love you all. <laughs> Klaus, not understanding, is the only one who crosses. Are you sure? Yes, I am. I don't understand. Why? What do you mean? Wait a second. What are we doing? You said cross the line. If cross the line if you're going to quit. Oh, do it again. I misunderstood. So fucking funny. Because <laughs> he's like so sincere. He's so serious. And yet it's like, this. it's just another subtle moment is why he's such a small but great character. Oh, man. That's the, you know, he just steals every scene he's in. Yeah, he's good. Uh, Klaus not understanding is the only one who crosses. Anne-Marie and six out of the seven interns cross the line. Steve later tells the interns they will get an incomplete, not a college credit. Jane also says that she is leaving Ned gives her a pile of papers and envelopes so she can write to him Steve is more distressed that Jane is no longer writing the article but also admits he will miss her As the ship goes through repairs Steve visits Eleanor at Villa Hennessy He asks her for money but is quickly rebuffed As it took Steve two and a half hours to get to Eleanor she lets him stay for a little while Eleanor asks how the father thing is going. Smoking a joint, Steve pontificates, saying, I know I haven't been my best this decade. If is, that's that's if meta that, on... Or different, I, so I, many I, levels. I really think that that is a meta commentary on Bill Murray's 90s. <clears throat> probably. That's great. That's probably... It's, it's funny because it's like it feels relatable, and yet like it feels very Bill Murray. You know, after you get past Groundhog Day, I think Bill Murray kind of although i guess there's what about bob but we can talk about him in general with this movie and we can save it for the end but this was really not with this movie but wes anderson i don't want to even say saved or resurrected because he had only he had done lost in translation you know only a year before this I yeah think. the year before this but you it's the 90s he kind of just disappears he's there but not he's at present but absent mid 90s he you know, like I said, Groundhog Day, I think, is, a, what, 92, 93? And after yeah. that, it kind of just teeters down. Um, so, you know, it literally took him, if Groundhog Day, I think, is 93, and he got nominated for the Oscar for Lost in Translation in 2003, that's a whole decade. Yeah, and it's kind of like, just can't, it's just funny, because I think of Latter-day Bill Murray, how a lot of people know him as the post-Wes Anderson guy. He's just become his own legend and whatever, but for the 2000s, he was, you know, ill. I mean, he's always been in Wes Anderson's movies, but that's really when he made a, a new kind of comeback as a totally different kind of person. So um, we can save all that for the Bill Murray identity piece at the end, because I think that, that this movie goes hand in hand with who he is. Um, but like, like I said, I'll save that. Back on the Belafonte, Steve barges into Ned's room. Ned and Jane are sleeping together, actually sleeping. Steve is pissed saying Jane lied to her. Jane 
writes back saying that Steve convinced her to stay to write the article. Steve asks, is it still the cover? That was one of the funniest moments because he's pissed that they're sleeping together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, what are you doing here? <laughs> and the moment that snaps him out is like, is it, is it still the cover? Like, <laughs> that's what he cares most about. It's so good. Steve and Ned walking through the ship have a contentious conversation about Jane. When they reach the deck of the ship, Ned says he is going to punch Steve. Steve punches Ned in the face. You never say I'm going to punch you, Steve. You just smile and act natural, and then you sucker punch him. Ned, taking the advice to heart, punches Steve. Ned further pushes Steve, saying that he knows Steve has known about him since the day he was born. Steve confirms it. Before anything more can be said, Eleanor shows up on the deck shouting, Someone pay for this water taxi. <laughs> in the command center, Bill left a message for the crew. Eleanor, honing in on the signal, believes Bill is on the Ping Islands. Steve wants to save Bill. But in a chivalrous way, Steve stands and exclaims, I'm wanted on the record that Eleanor is the brains behind Zisu. In a quick and quiet moment, Eleanor and Jane are in the kitchen. Eleanor confirms that Steve shoots blanks. He is incapable of having children. Twist. So Ned is not his child. Right. Ouchie. Yeah, uh, big, big ouchie for Steve-Z. I let you call me Steve-Z. Uh, <laughs> day 27. Rescuing the Bond Company Stooge. En route to the Ping Islands, the Belafonte finds the hull of Hennessy's ship floating in the water. Very Dunkirk. Absolutely. Literally, it's just the back of the ship sticking out of the water. It's straight out of Dunkirk. The crew gets to the island. Steve is depressed as the hotel that is now in ruin used to have a great bar. Steve asks Vikram if they're ready to go. Vikram takes the F-stop and they're off. Once in the hotel, Steve splits the crew into two teams. Klaus is disheartened because Steve did not pick him. Steve cheers him up by saying that he is the B-team leader. Steve and Esteban always thought of Klaus as a younger brother. Klaus, on the other hand, thought of them like his fathers, <laughs> which again, I I love it. It's so funny. It's so outrageous. Like, you know, Steve is telling Klaus, "You're like my brother," and Klaus is like, "You're like my father." Like, <laughs> the dynamic is just so funny. It's the expect the the way they look at him is is so funny because it's all everyone's got a different perspective. Uh. Every room is searched, but they come up empty. While leaving, Steve tells Ned he can call him Papa Steve. They find Bill in the coat check. As they leave the hotel, they find a graveyard in front. The dog, Cody, then leads Steve to the pirates who are playing poker with Alistair. Shocked, Alistair asks, quote, Steve, are you rescuing me? <laughs> Again, it's a hilarious Jeff Goldblum performance. Oh, it's so good. A shoot, a shootout breaks out. Alistair is hit in the chest. Ned and Klaus run in with dynamite and blow the place up. The crew, including Alistair with a bullet wound, run for the pirate's small ship. They get away with the safe, but in a hilarious reveal, there's a giant hole in the back of the safe. All the money is gone. Um, this felt a lot like the end of Bottle Rocket in the sense that he was building to this scene. Like he wanted to do a heist type situation in a very quirky comedy he was doing. 
only this time it feels because he has oh, a budget more budget. right um it seems like it's funny that he has this obsession that definitely comes up in grand budapest of of putting in like little action plots in these very <clears throat> otherwise um i don't know kind of quaint still an kind of comedies that he's doing he has like little bits with guns they have a heist they have a situation and he doesn't play it seriously i mean like he does it in a way where even if it works no i didn't make a note of it but there's a point in this sequence when steve literally falls down the stairs you know, yeah it it's good he puts comedy in these high stake moments which lowers the stake even it's, alistair yeah. when he uh sees steve it's hilarious yeah. He's like, are you here to rescue me? And it's then, so good. again, I didn't note it, but he's playing poker. He literally says to the pirates, <laughs> I fold, puts his yeah, cards yeah. down, <laughs> acts like he's <laughs> just going to walk out. I don't know. It's good. It's a good balance. On the Belafonte, Ned is sh showing off the new Zisa insignia. Steve likes it. Think it is time to call the new film quits. Ned snaps Steve out of his rut, reminding Steve he has $275,000 invested. Ned and Steve load into the chopper. Before they leave, Klaus is Ned for his final place on the Zsa flag. This was on it, like this moment. I know we keep, I keep talking, like me specifically keep bringing up Klaus, but this moment, so funny because yeah. he's like, I want to thank you for putting my placement on the flag. He's like, he's yeah, no problem. He's like, no, I want, <laughs> I want thank you. <laughs> I want you to know. <laughs> He's so emotional about it. Thank you for putting me on the flag, Ned. Of course, Klaus. It was my pleasure. Yeah, but you stitched me onto the dolphin, and I want you to know how much that means to me. Well, I'm very pleased you liked it. You, you're not listening. I didn't just like it. You understand? Yes, I do. A pop is heard on the chopper, and they plummet to the ocean. Steve's come, Steve comes out of the water, shouting for Ned. As the water turns red, Ned passes out. Funeral for Ned is held on the Belafonte with a few pilots on board. The coffin is covered by the new flag. The coffin is then dropped into the ocean. Did, I mean, yeah, let's talk about this now because I don't want to talk about it in my final thoughts. This, you can, Ned's death to me was just very random. It, it's, um, yeah, I, I, I find that uh, not unlike it's different but it's like not unlike the when they when buckley dies in, in royal tenenbaums it's like it's sad because it's you know it's the dog it's whatever but it's also like it's unexpected yeah um, but there's a difference between buckley's death this, and this is a, this death. is a whole this is a whole character you know yeah this is a character that we have grown to really like and even now steve is ready to be his father and maybe that's why they killed him off but at the same time i don't know i felt his death was unwarranted i he, yeah um he and i'm usually the kind of person who tells movie characters like who thinks that they should die you know like you want to talk yeah. about the marvel cinematic universe and their fake deaths it drives me fucking crazy yeah. but this just came out of left field and Most, i just, i don't know yeah. it doesn't work for me it's very, he does, like, well, the reason I compare it to Buckley is because it's not like, it's, what this is, is this sends off what I think is almost every movie of his moving forward, where there's some kind of unexpected death, even if it's small. In this sense, it's really big. This is a big death, because it's, like you said, see it coming. It's kind of just, 
and it's a big character. It's not like it's a random crew. Yeah, member. that's my point. Like, this is like probably the second yeah. most important character in the whole film. Right. And you just killed him off in a nonchalant way. I don't know. I will say, and I'll, I'll tie this. Of thoughts. Like I'll, I'll recall this moment because like I said, I don't want to talk about it, but it's like, um, I think it is kind of a counteract for who Steve is in this state of his life where he realizes you know, the regrets he has as a person, how he ultimately wants to change. If he does, there's hints of it with Ned that, like you said, he wants to be a father. And so it's almost like true to the character to keep him in this place of, well, he had his chance at being a decent human being. And even then it's almost like this is karma for being who he is. I don't know if that's like how deep it goes, but it's really just, um, he, Wes Anderson also has no ties to, his emotionally dramatic moments in the way that we're used to in Hollywood. Like we're used to big deaths being like pulling on our heartstrings and, um, you know, putting in different score or, or having a accenting a death in a dramatic way. And even though this Ned, you know, he's drowning and they show the flashes, it's dramatic. And it is sad because you feel for the character. It's not stylized in a way that a normal film would. It's yeah. still, it's very straightforward in a way that works for Wes Anderson. It's also kind of, um, it's just, it's, it's so, uh, cut and dry. There's nothing. So out of less field. I don't know. It just yeah. literally happens. And I don't know. I don't know. It didn't work for me, but Hey, that's um, me. I think it works for the Steve in, in, like I said, in counteracting to the Steve character, but I'll get, I'll, 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 I'll touch on that in, in a little bit. Um, the coffin is covered by the new flag. The coffin is then dropped into the ocean. Eleanor is crying in the kitchen. Steve notes this is the first time he had been allowed to see her do so. In a classic Wes Anderson way, just when everything looks its darkest, comedy comes through. Alistair in the kitchen notices the espresso machine is his. Steve kicks everyone out of the room so he can talk to Eleanor. Before leaving, Alistair says to Steve, we never made great husbands, have we? Of course, I have a good excuse. I'm part gay. Steve follows up by saying, supposedly everyone is. <laughs> Steve and Eleanor reconcile. Steve read Jane's article. At first, he did not care for it, but then realized it was all accurate. The conversation is quickly ended as the jaguar shark believed to be spotted. Everyone somehow packs into the yellow submarine. <laughs> the change in pressure cannot be good for a pregnant woman. Yeah, so many, I mean, I don't have a problem with this because it's like emotionally impactful, but there was just no way, no physical way that they can all fit. Like literally everyone has a seat. I've been on the Long Island Railroad and haven't been able to get a goddamn seat. You know, like there's no way everyone on that submarine can one fit and two, everyone has a fucking seat. I think that's almost kind of the point because this is a, in a sense, not a tall tale, but it's his own, he gets his own adventure in a way that's kind of feels unrealistic. Almost like you said with the pirate, uh, the pirate plot. It's kind of like, did it really happen? Like, I don't think we're meant to question anything happening in this movie in that sense. But a lot of this movie goes into those very dreamlike scenarios, even with the Jaguar shark looking the way it does in the animatronic. It's kind of like, if this, it feels very dreamlike. So I don't know. I, I, it, just, it doesn't bother me, but like you said, it's, it's definitely not realistic. <laughs> As they submerge, fish that look very Wes Anderson style swim around them. They reach the deep, dark caverns of the ocean floor, Finally, the fluorescent fish swim by the jaguar shark, 
Finally, the fluorescent fish swim by, the jaguar shark follows. Steve no longer wants to kill the shark. Instead, he cries. Everyone holds him. He then holds Jane's belly. Back at the French Film Festival, Steve's new documentary is playing. Steve, however, is outside smoking on the red carpet, which is probably the best place to be, honestly. Applause are heard from the theater. As people leave, Steve hoists Werner on his shoulders. As the credits roll, Steve is walking toward the Belafonte with Werner, who is now in a blue suit and red cap. As their walk continues, the crew gather, gathers around them. Steve gets on the ship and stands at the mast. The end. So, uh, you ready to give your final thoughts? Basically, I feel like I've never understood... If anything, the movie's overly ambitious, but I've never really understood why this movie gets the flack it does. And even with the flack, it's like, I really think this is one of my favorite of his movies. It still holds up in the way that I wanted it to. Um, in ways, it's more depressing than I remember because, <laughs> like like you had said when we had um, like opened, it's it's very um, it's very meta. The whole idea of of, of Steve and uh, the Bill Murray ca- like character representing the egotistical artist is something that's like, like I said, comparing it to like the prestige in the sense, like it's meta on the industry. It's almost like you just see an ego um, and he carries it throughout. And it's just funny because he's such a, he's such a prick in a way that like many characters, like we, people like you and I have come to grow to characters like that. Like he's not a, he's not a, by, by means a good person. No, You don't think he's a good person. And yet like, he's a very well-written character and in a sense he's very relatable in the sense like you just feel like he's he thinks he had done so much but so much of it is just him boosting his own ego he's got this crew that worship that he kind of just he's very selfish and he's very he's responsible for you know uh like people's deaths and he's very um he's very blasé about the way he carries himself in a way that only bill murray could i don't think this movie would work without anyone but Bill Murray in the starring role. It would just seem strange. Um, in a way, it's a turning point, I think, for Bill Murray's career, where he, like I said, like we were saying, like we started to say before, it's the point where Bill Murray, who he was and who he is now. Um, but the film is also incredibly personal in a very, like, silly kind of way. Like, I don't know, characters running around in these slick blue outfits and these goofy red hats on this, like, big journey to look for a jaguar shark that to avenge someone's death it's like you how do you spin that as like an actual emotional bond but it really is about how a man just comes to the towards the end of his life or he comes towards the latter part of his life dwelling on himself as a great artist who at the opening of the of a of his film it's met with mixed reception like you said it's almost a lot like a film festival where like people are like awkward about it like they want to like it because they're there and they're dressed up for it and yet they're not even sure that what they watched is even good. And it's kind of like, that's a complete representation of me of not just the film industry, but artists, especially cocky artists. So to see him go on this one last hurrah is just, I don't know, it's very unique. It feels personal in a strange way. And again, that maybe that's Noah Baumbach, but um, it's perhaps the most different movie that Wes Anderson's ever made. And to me, I guess that makes it special. Um, and yet there's still that similar quirk. And it's the one that has developed his cult following in the way that his fans are known to, like, I mean, I, you see people 
dress up as these characters, you know what I mean, in real life or at like conventions and stuff. So um, this movie's got a weird, strange vibe about it from beginning to finish, almost unlike anything else. And if for that nature alone, um, I just think it's very unique. Um, it's, yeah, I don't know. I just, I love it in ways that I can't really quite explain. I think there's a lot of commentary on it. Um, it kind of hits me in all the right ways. I like these, like the last few movies, like every one we've watched so far, it hits different watching it as in, you know, older now than when I was in college. You, you said a couple things that uh, I want to kind of expunge upon. You know, you used the word unique or maybe it doesn't necessarily fit the Wes Anderson mold. And that's kind of where I'm at with it. It's not that I think that this is a bad movie by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, sure. I think it's a lot of fun and it's funny. Like it's, I think that this is like a classic funny movie, but yeah, I feel like for the first time, Wes Anderson is not making a Wes Anderson movie. He is making a Bill Murray movie. Oh, that's a good way of putting it. I just that's the only way I can explain it it's quirky and comedic in the way that plays solely to Bill Murray you know sure it has Wes Anderson's set design and everything but like you said no one else could have been in this movie because there's literally this this was made this was literally catered to Bill Murray and for that reason I think that it is a Bill Murray movie not a Wes Anderson movie that's an interesting take I, again, I am not complaining. I think that it is hilarious and quirky in all the right ways. You used another word, though, that I will 100% agree on, that it is sometimes very overly ambitious. I feel as though this movie takes on a lot more than it necessarily can chew at sometimes. And like you and I talked about earlier, the whole Ned death subplot doesn't really work for me which again i'm shocked i'm saying that usually character deaths are like my thing because i want to because i'm a sadist yeah but this one just didn't work for me that for whatever reason i think it's it's because what we talked about earlier it just felt unwarranted and unjustified and it just kind of happened out of left field um but again you know i can't deny Klaus, uh, Willem Dafoe's hilarious performance. I talked, I gushed about it enough already. Kate Blanchett's crazy, oh, this is probably the most over the top she's ever been, yet she's mm-hmm. still in control. Mm-hmm. Uh, Angelica, he, you know, the whole cast and crew, I think. And I think this is phenomenal. first time first time that Jeff Goldblum uh, joins the crew. I don't think he was in no, the you're right. This is uh, his first Wes Anderson movie. This he is, will uh, he's a uh, First, uh, is uh, 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 I don't know how he does it. Um, he's uh, Jeff's Jeff Goldblum, man. He's really he does it, makes everything he makes every scene he's in better just by being himself. Is that um, is that my espresso machine? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Oh uh, man, uh, but, but I guess those are my overall feelings. Uh, a fun sea adventure. I feel like if Wes Anderson. This movie feels like if Wes Anderson were to make a Bill Murray Pirates of the Caribbean movie. And that's <laughs> where I will end it on. No, that's good. I, um, I think that there's a lot that, uh, like you said, biting off more than he can chew. Um, it's weird how tonally 
all over the place the movie is. Because even, yeah. pi- even the pirate scene and Ned's death, like, like, I mean, again, because Ned's a big character, maybe his death is supposed to feel a little more jarring or a little more dramatic in, its, in a different kind of sense. Like I said, uh, the other deaths uh, feel very, it's very usually cut and dry and to the to a degree it is here, but it's um, his tone is not consistent. But, no, absolutely not. But that's but, why I use your word of overly ambitious. Yeah. I feel like the tonal imbalance comes from that ambition and wanting to get as much as possible in this movie. Yeah, it feels and, it feels like a passion. It feels and like that, what? A passion project. Yeah. And that doesn't always, those don't always work. And I'm not saying that this, I mean, I can see why it doesn't work for some people because I can almost imagine they could have left a lot, a couple of these plot lines and even some of the characters on the cutting room floor. And it almost feels like, because it's probably one of his movies, it's just, it's almost at the two hour mark. This is his longest movie to date. So, and it's, and you can almost, not again, because I love it, but it's like, you can, you can kind of feel it. Like by the time you get to, the the pirate um, the pirate uh, cove <laughs> whatever it is where they're where they're they're taken aboard by the ship I mean I think you still have almost another hour of the movie left and you're yeah, already kind of taking your plot in different directions so it's weird that the tone feels as inconsistent as it does sometimes but it but yet for me it's always like Bill Murray is always consistent and so that's why it's interesting you say it's more of a Bill Murray movie than a West you know what it is it's a Bill Murray version of Indiana Jones because Indiana Jones (laughs) has all these misadventures throughout his movies it's one problem over the next over the next and sure tonally it's probably more consistent Indiana Uh Jones but I feel like that's kind of what they're going for in this movie just an adventure where shit just continuously happens but you, you know, know that, but you know the hero is always going to come out on top. Yeah, because it's an adventure movie first and foremost. It's a Bill yeah, yeah. Murray adventure movie. That's good. But uh, I guess those are my final feelings on the movie. You uh, uh, ready to give your pick of the week? Absolutely. Um, just going to keep the tone. Well, talking about the Bill Murray, I was, I was thinking about it earlier, but it's just, I'm going to go with Ghostbusters. Oh, nice. Yeah, I just think it's... Um, as far as I don't want to, I guess you could say as far as supernatural comedies go, uh, they don't really always work. And it's one of those that does. Um, it's got an insane cult following, I think, for a reason. Um, <laughs> it, even as just a standalone guy, I like Ghostbusters too. Um, and I think, I think even if you just leave the first Ghostbusters as is, it's just everything about it is kind of uh, perfect in its own sense. Are you not counting the? all female the, reboot S, of this movie the, S, the snl female uh ghostbusters i didn't see it but uh we've i know how people feel about it it's but okay. even like a, i don't think it's as bad as people say it is that's it's good. not good but it's not that bad <laughs> like uh like oceans whatever it is with uh, oceans know. nine <laughs> oceans eight whatever it is it, um, um, oceans eight was probably better than ghostbusters all I, I i mean it doesn't it doesn't matter it's just but but the whole idea of what what started is it's one of these lightning in a bottle ideas i think almost like men in black even though men in black was a comic um it's this idea of blending genres uh which i absolutely love um in the way that men in black blends comedy and sci-fi um in the way that ghostbusters blends comedy sci-fi and sometimes horror you know it's just i mean it's obviously with ghosts comes horror but it's not really necessarily scary um but it's very 
um, tonally the genre blending, the mashing works in ways that a lot of other movies have failed at trying to experiment with. Um, part of it is just the chemistry and it's, um, I think Ivan Reitman had directed it, but that whole, yep. just the whole chemistry between the main four, um, you know, poor enough for Harold Ramis, you know what I mean? Just the whole gang. Like there's a reason that movies like that work just to see uh, guys like that together. Um, very and now funny. we will have to wait for the reboot, Quill. Oh yeah. Uh, it was supposed Lord, to come out this summer. Uh, Lord knows, uh, Stranger, Str uh, Stranger Ghostbusters. Ghostbuster things. Ghostbusters. <laughs> So, uh, so hey, you're calling a, on Ghostbusters. As call on Ghostbusters. I'd love to hear yours. Uh, my pick of the week, I'm going to go with Zoolander. Because we covered Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson last week. And you know what? The David Bowie in this movie just pushed me over the edge. I was like, you know, perhaps I can be of assistance. <laughs> that movie, again, I... I, it's so funny. I I can't really say anything about how, you know, I. It's just you, one of the funniest movies that's ever been made. You you don't have to make an argument for Zoolander. That's an incredibly funny movie. I caught it only a few years ago on Comedy Central. And I had not watched it in years, and I was still laughing my ass off just as much as I did years ago. Uh, ben Stiller and uh, Will Ferrell, just so good when will ferrell shows him the model what is this some kind of joke a school <laughs> for ants <laughs> and the whole end of uh just even the end when they're planning to like um to kill the prime minister or whatever it is and they just the the flashing lights and just seeing all the faces and will ferrell's just so into it. he's got his little dog and it's just like so good but then God, just... are you not aware that i get farty and bloated with a foamy latte <laughs> Oh man! But then, even when they, when Owen Wilson and Ben Stiller dress up as the characters, and they're just like, it's just they start putting on the makeup, and it's just two completely different black actors. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. It's a, but like Ghostbusters, just ended after the first one. I didn't see the sequel, so I can't tell you how good or bad it is. I only have heard bad things. What Zoolander? You mean Zoolander Two? Oh yeah, I keep I keep forgetting that with that movie even exists. That's what I'm saying. Just like, from, I have not seen Zoolander Two but I want to keep it that way. I also, yeah, I'm also okay with just not continuing the story. Sometimes movies just, you know, yeah. just stay as they are. I mean, like I, like I said, even about Ghostbusters, it's like, I like Ghostbusters too, but I'm cool with just the first one being a standalone movie. I don't need anything else, even this new one. It's like, I'm sure I'll, I'm going to see it, but you know, these, these, some of these movies just really work on their own. Yeah. And, so uh, uh, I guess my final pitch for the movie would just be Ben Stiller, Owen Wilson, David Bowie, and Will Ferrell. Classic classics. And it's well, it's 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 a uh, Ben Stiller's own adventure movie, much in the way that. Uh... Oh, and come on, <laughs> R.I.P. to our guy Jerry Stiller. Let's oh, pour one out for him. Man. He's great out. in that movie too. It's one of the only no they did I think Heartbreak Kid to think they were together but it's one of the only ones I've seen them on screen together. The, I have not seen Heartbreak Kid but I have I, not heard great things so I don't know. Uh, I see parts of it, but but uh, uh, those are our pick of the weeks. So uh, as always, you can follow me on Instagram at Mr. Philmart and Steve. I, we gotta get this page up. We're working, <laughs> on it, we're working on it. We're working on it. <laughs> 27 and years later. 20. <laughs> Future. <laughs>
future. <laughs> Every episode is just going to end with just the, the audio clip of Squirt screaming future as he's doing crunches. That would be amazing. <laughs> so oh, uh, It'll happen, though. I promise. So we'll see you all next week when we hit the halfway mark in Wes Anderson's filmography with the Darjeeling oh. Express. Uh, Darjeeling Limited. For those Limited. That's, that's what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you still talking, it's the, you know, the, also known as the Darjeeling Express, depending on what country you're in. But no, I'm making that up. That's not true. So Darjeeling that is, that's fake news. <laughs> so we will see you next time. <laughs>